Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and that would be page 808 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you this morning. I want to thank you for coming and glad to see all of you. While you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, just let me say a couple of things. I have that reversed. That goes there and that goes there. Okay. First of all, um, if you have a question uh, about what was said or sung or read this morning when we're through, I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you. If you're wondering why these lovely flowers are here, uh, there is a memorial service today here at 2 o'clock on behalf of Miller Johnson. So I just want to let you know that. Verse 14, chapter 4. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip? in love and with a gentle spirit. Hmm. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow and pray together. Our gracious God and Father, how we plead with you this morning for the very present help of the Holy Spirit as we open up your book and let you teach us from it. Thank you, God, for the truth that you do choose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And you do choose the weak things of this world to shame the strong so that no one will boast before you. And clearly then, Father, our only boast can be in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ who is for us our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, and the, and the very wisdom of you, the living God. So we thank you for these great and precious assurances and may each of them frame our thinking and guard our living as we live for you in these days and please father grant for us your wisdom and your mighty power as you make much of yourself this whole day for jesus sake amen excuse me my father this past monday celebrated his 86th birthday And as you might expect, I was thinking about his life and what he means to me as my father. As I did this, the verses that I just read to you this morning had a much more, uh, much more profound um, dimension to them. So as I read verse 15b, and you can see this if your Bible is open, I became your father through the gospel. And having read verse 14b, my dear children, it would do us all well to understand that Paul's words here... They're not theater. So he's not trying to play mind games uh, to win them over. He's not trying to play mind games to win their emotions. He means what he says. Therefore, throughout the letter, Paul is going to deal with these uh, people, these Christians, 
as a father speaking to his own dear children. And so that serves as a framework for Paul's warning to them and beginning in verse 14. And I think that's good to know because part of what makes a dad, a good dad, is that he watches over his children. And when he needs to, he warns his children. He warns because he cares. And part of what makes good children is that good children heed their father's warning. So Paul warns because he cares. And taking that truth in light of the verses that we covered last time, verses 8 through 13, we see that as firm as Paul was in those verses, and if you were here last time, they were firm verses. As firm as he was, was as firm as he needed to be. They could not see the trouble they were in. Children usually can't. And so he warns them. He rocks their boat a little bit. And surely, uh, this isn't just the warning for the Corinthian church. It's a warning for all of God's churches in every place and in every age. So last time we learned the Corinthian church was full of individuals who were self-satisfied. They thought they had arrived, that they were the top of the line. And of course, this gave way to pride, pride-filled boasting, criticisms, judgmentalisms, and essentially the general quality of their spiritual life of this church was either inaction or ineffectiveness. So some might have been busy bodies, but they were busy bodies, busy for themselves. And the transformation that they needed to take place in their lives was not taking place in their lives, which is always the case when someone in Christ thinks they've arrived. There's an old song that has a line, oh, I, I don't want to work. I want to bang on the drum all day. That's them. They're thinking we've arrived, nothing really to do. The world is our oyster. We, we are kings, put on slippers and bang on the drum. And because of this self-satisfaction and self-preoccupation, they were blind to the harsh realities as things actually were. And so we read this a little bit in chapter 5, and we'll get to this in the coming weeks. All that high-mindedness, all that pride-filled thinking and living meant that they were a terribly immoral church, horribly immoral, self-satisfied. They couldn't do the basic things in the church right. And that takes us to our first point the tension that they face. And if you have a worship folder, you can look to the back and you can track along with me. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because we worked through this last time. However, the tension that they faced was the perception that the Corinthians had of themselves and the actual condition of what Paul and his colleagues were in inauthentic Christian service. So verse 8, you can see this there. They thought themselves rich, full, and flourishing. Man, they're really something. Then take your eyes and bring them to verse 13. Paul and his colleagues are being regarded as the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. Remember, we learned last time that 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 was the equivalent of dirt on the kitchen floor and scum from the kitchen plots. I can't ever sweep my kitchen floor again without thinking of that verse, to be honest with you. I did it at least twice this week. So if you look at verse 18 and consider it and then take your eyes right to verse 13, it's very easy to see the tension that's there. One group is behaving like they're kings and queens in Disneyland. That's verse 8. The other group is behaving like they're slaves and servants on the death boat. That's verse 13. And the truth that then we need to take from this is that any church reckless enough to boast in the way that the Corinthians were will be a danger to itself and, and certainly be a danger to other people. Because after all, what is one of the main and plain things we've been learning since we've spent time in Corinthians? Well, we've been learning, and hopefully by God's grace, we've been applying that no church 
And no Christian has anything to boast about, about themselves in terms of their gifts, in terms of the salvation they received, and in terms of the effectiveness that they enjoy, or whatever quality of life they've obtained. Because it all comes from God. And besides, only God knows his true, the, the true motives, and he's not saying anything until when? Until the very end. Okay, so one may plant and one may water, but only God makes everything grow and go. Only God brings the stuff, period. Therefore, the only boast can be in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the first point. That's the tension that they face. Secondly, then, verses 14 through 16, the truth He confirms. So when you begin reading verse 14, you you immediately begin that he's changing his mood. I mean, this isn't like hard theology. This is a letter to people. So his mood changes. You can do that when you write letters. Verses 18 to 13, it's, it's ironic. It's firm. It's very near sarcastic. And now he begins in verse 14. His tone has changed. Paul's sternness gives way to tenderness. I mean, dads, we understand this, right? So he addresses the problem. He hits it square. Everyone's clear on things. It's on the table. This is what I like about Paul. It's on the table. The elephant in the room is acknowledged. And so having put it out there, verse 14, he said, look, guys, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, to warn you as my dear children. Now, I want you to know that you should not think that Paul is above shaming them. He's not. Shame is a painful, and it's a powerful awareness of our guilt. Uh, uh, shame, this is uh, Tim, Tom, Tim Shell, excuse me. Shame is an aspect of God's common grace that keeps us from expressing ourselves in ways that would otherwise result in serious consequences. In other words, shame keeps us at bay. So Paul does not have a problem with shaming people. He just chooses not to in this case. Let me give you a few examples. Chapter 5, verse 2 of this letter. He's speaking about incest in the church. And this is what he says. And you're proud about this? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put the fellow out of the fellowship? I mean, shame on you. Chapter 6, verse 5. Speaking of lawsuits among believers, Christian versus Christian in the church. Paul says, verse 5. I say this to shame you. Same word in verse, or chapter 4. I say this to shame you. I say this to confront you with your guilt. In chapter 15, verse 34, Paul says to the church, Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So we may not say there is no place for shame in the life of God's people. There is. So if you hear the word shame, let me say it like this. If I hear the word shame, two things come to mind. One is Gomer Pyle. Remember? Shame, shame, shame. He's right. He'd been a good fit in the church in Corinth. And the other thing I think about is, is one of my instructors from seminary who told us men in seminary, he said that, I want you to imitate me. Whenever he would drive by a place of ill repute, you know, one of the adult places, he says, and if you see people coming in and out, just honk your horn. <laughs> because what do you usually do when you honk, someone honks their horn at you? I've been caught. Shame, shame, shame. And as you think about this, that's part of the deal in the Old Testament. God's people, time and time again, were t- told, you guys are no longer ashamed of your, of your evil ways. You don't feel even guilt anymore about doing wrong. 
And all they had to do was acknowledge their behavior before God, seek his forgiveness, ask for his help to do better, and then it would have been fine. No shame. No shame at all. That's grace. That's God. But, let me just give you one example. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 12. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they don't even know how to blush. They pursue their own course like a horse charging into battle. So clearly there's a place for shame. However, here in verse 14, Paul determines not to do this. So he writes again, verse 14. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to, but to warn you. To warn you. And notice the intimacy. As my dear children. Now, loved ones, this isn't rhetoric. That's reality. They are Paul's spiritual children. If you remember way back when we first started Corinthians, we learned in Acts 18, you get this wonderful biography of how the church unfolded. So the church was founded on account of Paul. Paul was working and preaching in Corinth. Later on, Paul and, or excuse me, Timothy and Silas send money via the church in Macedonia. And now Paul doesn't have to work and preach. All he can do now is preach. And Paul devotes himself exclusively to preaching. And when that happened, Acts 18.8 says this, As a result, the entire household of the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, came to faith and believed, and a great many other Corinthians who heard and believed and were baptized. Isn't that interesting? Working, preaching, not much happening, just preaching, all of a sudden things start to happen. So Paul begins to reflect on his letter. And so he might have thinking, okay, you know, it was really hard on them in verses 8 to 13. I understand this, but it was all true. And so then maybe he said, and this is conjecture, but then he said, well, you know what? Let me balance this out. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. And that will do because that is a perfect balance, truth and grace. So he's thinking about the hard days when he, when he entered into Corinth. Remember, he was all by himself in, in that great metropolis. He's a little man in a big city. He's not very impressive. He makes tents. He preaches the gospel. All of a sudden, friends come, send some money via the church. He preaches all the time. And off God goes. Crispus is saved. His household is saved. People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Other Corinthians are saved. I mean, this is the good stuff in the life of the church. People are baptized. The church grows. And as he thinks about all that, his heart must have been just like leaping every time he thinks of that person being converted and that person being converted and how the good that God did there while he was there. I mean, that's the way any pastor would feel about his congregation that God has entrusted him to. Because after all, if you do not have those feelings about your congregation, then I can guarantee you two things. Number one, you'll never say, I'm not writing to you this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Because number two, you'll always be a yes dad. You'll never warn the congregation about anything. You just want to be liked all the time. And I understand that. It's nice to be liked. It's nice to be liked. But good dads really love their kids and protect them and they warn them and so they say the hard stuff in a loving, sensible, respectful way but they still say the hard stuff because they're good dads. So he goes on, verse 15. Yeah, you may have many guardians, or tutors, the word there is pedagogue in the Greek, 10,000 pedagogues, guardians in Christ. In other words, yeah, there are lots of people who, who have influenced you, who taught you. And that's true for all of us now, especially in our age. The pedagogue that Paul writes about, by the way, or the guardian in the ancient world is one who, under the supervision of the real father, he managed the welfare of the kids, he took the kids to school, he looked after them. So at best, the pedagogue or the guardian was just a caregiver. 
He was a caregiver, but he wasn't the real dad. So when you and I, when we drop our children off at child care, the people watch over our kids there, they can never call them their real kids. I mean, they might say it, and we understand them. That's always nice to hear. But they're just the guardians of the kids. They're not the mom, and they're not the dad. And so what Paul was saying is, I don't want you to think that I'm being hard on you. Don't think I'm coming down on you like a ton of bricks. You're my kids. I love you. I just want to warn you. You came to faith by God's grace as a result of me telling you the gospel. I'm an apostle. I have this duty. So clearly, Paul's affection for them was huge. No matter how much help they have received from their 10,000 guardians in Christ, and they would have been helped, they owed most of it to Paul. And because the plumb line of the truth is Paul's message, the gospel, they need to pay attention to Paul. And that is what Paul is driving home. Therefore, you must listen to me. And that's what Paul is doing. And so the loyalty that he asked for is striking, but he's saying it like a dad to his kids. I'm your spiritual dad. And all good children, verse 16, look at your Bibles, will imitate their dad. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me, an apostolic injunction. Mimic me. So in verses 14 to 15, Paul uses intimacy. Now he uses urgency in verse 16. Your situation is so bad, church, they need to copy your dad. You need to copy your dad. Moffat on this says, all he wants from them is the childlike instinct and desire to be like his father. Now, let's just stop for a second and ask this, the question. Is that pride on Paul's part? Imitate me. Is it? It's not. He says the same thing in many other places. Let me give you one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. The Corinthian church, among other things, are horrible at evangelizing. So Paul is teaching them, rearrange your common life for the sake of the gospel, no matter what it costs you. And then he says, follow me. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, that's not presumption. I have a friend who's a karate instructor. He puts the kids on the mat, and he stands in front of the mat, and he says, okay, kids, do what I do. And that's what they do if they want to learn karate. And if they're going to do it well, they're going to copy him well. Is that presumption? No. That's just how it is. Because on one level, and this is for us, if we're in Christ... And we cannot say on some level to someone, imitate me, then we have no example for them to follow. And that's not good. That is not good because we all need examples. It's not in the notes, but I said this in the first service. When we were raising our kids, we're still doing it, but you understand in the early days, we never had like a parenting book. And that was just us. We had a Bible and we watched other people's examples in the life of the church. That's what we did. That's what we still do. I'm not saying that's the best thing, but I'm saying that's what we did. Bible example. We needed the people's example to learn when we were doing it right and to learn when we were doing it wrong and to watch. You became imitators of us, says Paul to the church in Thessalonica. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. There's a country music person, Paul Overstreet. He has a song that has the line, I'm seeing my father in me. I guess that's how it's meant to be. And I find I'm more and more like him each day. I notice I walk the way he walks. I notice I talk the way he talks. I'm starting to see my father in me. Will you give me just a moment to indulge myself? It just popped in my head. I remember my dad used to always walk around with his hands in his pocket. And I remember as a kid, I would just do... 
put my hands in my pocket just like my dad. And people would say, you're just like your dad. Your hands are in your pocket. Yeah, I'm starting to see my father and me. And that's what Paul was saying. I love you. You're my dear children. Yeah, you got lots of guardians. I understand that. I understand you can get online anytime you want. Open a book anytime you want. I understand that. But under God, you owe it to me first through the gospel. And that is the intimacy there. Because of that intimacy, then, there is urgency. Imitate me, because he really, really cares. He cares for them. He sets up his whole life, Paul does, to show him, them how much he cares. And that's, I think, I think it's far better than, you know, the song, my son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball. Dad, come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, no, not today. I got a lot to do. He says, that's okay. And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. And I said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah, you know I'm going to be like him. And you remember the refrain, the cat's in the cradle, uh, silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you coming home, dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, dad. Or we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. And then the last verse, when the son came from college just the other day, so much like a man, I just had to say, son, I'm proud of you. You, can you sit for a while? He shook his head and said with a smile, what I'd really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you're coming home, son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. You'll know we'll have a good time then. And of course, there never is a then. There never is a then. And your loved ones, we're all giving off some kind of spiritual example to others. We are. And I'm not saying that to shame you. I'm just saying that to warn you. Number one point, the tension that they face, it was real. Number two, the truth that he confirms. Then finally, or excuse me, third point, not finally. Don't smile yet. <laughs> the man that he sends, verse 17. And so this is just... This is so logical, right? Verse 17, Paul can't get to them, but he's got to get to them. So he's going to send his best man, Timothy. Oh, why Timothy? Well, let me just say it like this. Paul has over 110 ministry associates in the New Testament. If you count all the numbers, 110. And this was the only time that Paul said anything like this about any of them, Timothy. This is Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this, I have no one else like Timothy who will show a genuine concern for your welfare. Everyone else seems to be wrapped up in their own affairs. Not Timothy. Not Timothy. Timothy will be all wrapped up in you. So Paul will send Timothy. And when Timothy goes to the church, he's not going to go as an innovator. He's not going with his own agenda. He's going to be an imitator. Timothy will take a genuine interest in the church. So I want you to just think for a moment, if we can't go someplace ourselves and we have to send a substitute, we would want to make sure that our substitute was in line with our own convictions, true to our lifestyle, and in agreement with our work and our words. I mean, that only makes sense. If any of us had to go to an occasion or couldn't go to an occasion, we had to send someone, we would want someone who represented us to represent us. We wouldn't send anyone. I hope we wouldn't just send anyone. So we'd want them to hold to the things that we hold to, the beliefs that we share, the work that we value. In the same way, says Paul, I want you to listen to my warning. I want you to listen to me. And for that to take place, I'm sending you my best. I'm sending you Timothy. Verse 17b, 
Who's Timothy? He's my son, not by natural means, but by gospel ministry. Uh, Timothy heard the gospel through Paul, and Timothy said yes to Christ as Paul preached the gospel. And so that's why he says, he's my son whom I love, who's faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agree with what I teach everywhere in the church, in every church, everywhere in every church, everywhere in every church. Okay, so listen, that isn't a throwaway line. I mean, that is some big time theology in verse 17. Let me just give you four quick things. First thing, it's pretty practical. Isn't that a great statement to have said of you? Sons and daughters in the Lord who are faithful in the Lord. I mean, of all the things that be said about us, I think probably the one thing we'd want to be said about us is that they were faithful. They were faithful in the Lord. That's the first thing. The second thing, Paul can't get away from using family terminology even in his leadership team. Timothy is not called the executive vice president of quality control for the Apostle Paul's worldwide super-duper ministry consortium. That's too much our day. That's not Paul's way. No, it's pretty practical. Hey, guys, I'm sending you my son. He's really, he's really a good one. He's going to set his life aside for you. Third thing. When he comes, Paul says, he's going to be just like his dad. Verse 17b, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, Timothy doesn't need to be an innovator. He just needs to be an imitator. And holy Moses, what a lesson for the church of Jesus Christ in the West, who is shrinking Sunday by Sunday. Our strength is not so much in our innovation, but in what? Our imitation of who? Of Christ and of Paul, and of Timothy. And we need to learn that lesson. Fourth thing, Paul teaches the same thing everywhere he goes. And if you're incredibly boring like me, I love this. Paul lays down the same pattern and principle everywhere he goes in all the churches. He gives the same examples in all the churches. Same belief, same behavior. So he doesn't need a strategy meeting on what he's going to teach city folk versus what he's going to teach country folk. He doesn't do market surveys to find out what people would really like to hear on a Sunday morning. He just does what? He does the same thing that he did in Thessalonica, the same thing he did in Ephesus, the same thing he did in Corinth, the same thing he wrote to the church in Colossae. The same thing. By the way, you'll find that same phrase at the end of verse 17 and the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul says... Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them to. Just as I called them, God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Same. It's the same. In other words, Paul's not a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction. He doesn't have a different message for different churches. He wouldn't say, I have a special word for this place. No, he would always take the given gospel and check your Bibles to make sure this is true. He would always take the given gospel and apply it to the given situations in the life of the church. And so someone would ask, okay, what right does Paul have to lay down any rule in any church? Right? This is the 21st century. Who does he think he is? And and isn't the church a democracy? I mean, isn't it? Well, the answer to that would be this. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. His words were the very words of Christ in a unique way. He was sent by Christ. He laid down the foundation of the church along with Peter and the other apostles and the prophets. And so whenever they gave instruction, it was the word of God. 
And so whenever we hear their instruction via, through the word of God, we're listening to the voice of God. So when we obey our Bibles like the way they're set up, it's like actually obeying God. Makes sense. And that's why we pay such close attention to the Bibles here. That's why we go verse by verse the vast majority of time. It's an apostolic book. It's an alive book in Christ. It's what God intended because the church isn't ours. It's God's. And so we do, listen carefully, we do what he has already said. We do what he has already said. And then that takes us then to our final point. Number one, the tension they faced was real. Paul's circumstance is genuine. Theirs is delusional. The truth he confirms. Look, I'm not writing to shame you, but to warn you. You guys need to get this. This is what good dads do. The man he sends is Timothy. He's my very best. I'm sending you my best. He, he, he's just like his dad. And for the sake of the gospel, imitate him. And for the sake of the gospel, watch Timothy lose his life for the gospel. Imitate him because he's imitating me. And loved ones, remember, Timothy doesn't go there as an innovator. He goes there as an imitator. And how hard it is for people to play the second fiddle. How hard it is for men and women to play the second fiddle in life, in ministry, or whatever. It takes an unusual grace for people to play the second fiddle well. Then the test he applies, verse 18 there until the end. Paul says, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I'm coming if the Lord's willing. And then he says, then we'll see. So why is Paul saying that in verses 18 and following? Well, here's the situation. There were more than likely teachers in the church with big heads and little brains. And they were in the church telling the church it's okay to move away from what Paul's teaching. You know, Paul's gone now. Who knows? And he'll be back. And by the way, he really wasn't that impressive. So you just listen to us and everything will be fine. And Paul's reply to all that kind of muddle-headedness is verse 19. I'm coming back. If God is pleased to sin, I'm coming back. And then those arrogant people will have to take the test. Then they'll have to take the test. Because there's only one truth. There's only one standard. There's only one message. There's one test. Now, please understand this. Sincerity in Bible teaching is not the test. Really cool examples in Bible teaching is not the test. Really impressive rhetorical skills in Bible teaching and preaching is not the test. Telling the church of your visions and dreams that you had is not the test. Saturday morning, I looked at my email. My son Jared sent me an email. This is the title. The boy who claimed he went to heaven recants. Publishers pull book. This is what he said. Poor kid. Please forgive the brevity, but because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. I didn't die and I didn't go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, he's 17 now, I think he made the claim when he was 6, yes. When I said what I said, when I made the claims that I did, I, I never read the Bible. <laughs> right? I never took the test. People have profited from my lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. Hmm. 
This is the test. This is the test of the ministry. Does it follow the apostolic standard? Is it, is it true to what Paul declares? Is Christ preached the way that Christ is presented? Does it hold the line? Does it follow Christ's representatives, the apostles, as given to us in the pages of the Bible? Because the test, look at your Bible, verse 30, the test is not about talk, but of power. The church in Corinth talked a big game. But, verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Of power. Talk, 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 talk. <laughs> when, when I was younger, because of a series of weird circumstances, my older brother had to watch me on a Saturday. He had to babysit me. So I was about 10 years old. I know it's kind of creepy to think about, but I was 10 years old. And so he dragged me along with his buddies to the mall. Okay, so boys with their buddies oftentimes like to boast. They're big talkers. So, so they were like, you know, strutting their stuff in the mall. You know how that is, right? And they were all talking about how each of them, if they saw this particular ugly, young, lovely lady, they were going to ask her out on a date if they happened to see her. <laughs> well, guess what? They happened to see her. So before, it was always, she's really going to like me, and she won't be able to say no to me, and you just watch me. You know, I'm the one. When I go up to her, the, her life's going to change, and blah, 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 blah right? <laughs> and so here she comes. No one says anything. I'm 10 years old. I'm like, this is going to be like a PG movie. This is going to be fantastic. I'm going to watch this, and maybe I'll learn a thing or two. Everybody zipped their lip. Nothing. Nothing. Well, why? It was all talk and no power. And in much the same way, although it be a kind of creepy example, Paul is saying the same thing. He's telling those arrogant, inflated with self-importance few in the Corinthian church who have strayed away from the truth. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm going to give you the test. You see, loved ones, it is a sign of immaturity to be big on talk and to be short on action. And that was the problem in Corinth. They could talk the talk, but they had no power. They had no action. And Paul says, when I come, I'm going to give you the test, and then you'll know, then everybody will know. Because, yeah, church in Corinth, you may be gifted in speaking. We get that. That's fine. But is there any power? Is there being a transformed life? Are lives being changed? Obviously not when we get on to chapter 5. And that's the issue. For the kingdom of God, verse 20, is not a matter of talk, but of power. Is the Spirit of God driving in the truth to His people, and their people's lives are being changed for Jesus Christ. And you see, the Corinthian church had grown away from the very thing that Paul had established in the very beginning. Listen to your Bibles. This is 1 Corinthians 2.4. He said, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, inference like you Corinthians, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And you see, loved ones, that kind of power will sustain you and will keep your hands to the plow. It will protect you in the darkest days and it will change you. It will change you. And just look at Paul. He had it worse than anyone. But there was no way that he was abandoning his mission for Jesus Christ. That's power. That's power. So Paul says, hey, I love you. 
You're my dear, dear children. I'm going to come, and when I do, what do you want? Verse 21, you see it there. Shall I come with a whip or in, or in love and with a gentle spirit? It's up to you. It's up to you. And that's the test that he applies. Which one, kids? Do you want nice dad or do you want rough dad? It's your choice. It's up to you. So I was thinking way back in the day when my children were young and they were anticipating the, the homecoming of their father day by day. It was a really nice grace that God gave us to be able to do that. And it was almost always, yay, dad's home, right? But on occasion, and you dads know this, you'll get the call from, from my wife. And I told them, you just wait till your father gets home. It's like, ugh. And my wife's not in here. I'd be like, Okay, I know it's your fault. It can't be my kids. <laughs> and I just hated it. They're my kids. You want them to get it right every day. You want to come home. I want to come home bouncing in the house. You know, we got about three and a half hours before everybody has to go to bed. So let's make it a good three and a half hours. And so Paul says, it's your choice, church. When, when I come home, you want a whip or a hug? It's just terminologies. He's not really going to take a whip, but that's the point. Which one do you want? They're not a very good church. They have huge problems. They have big lust, and their pride is masking all of their sins. So what does God do? Does he abandon them? No. He sends Paul. Well, what does Paul do? Well, he sends Timothy to help them. Because he cares. That's what good dads do. So I was thinking about our congregation. You have to in light of these verses. And I thought to myself, what are the warnings that we need to heed as a congregation? I wrote down a few. Here they are. In light of what we learned, number one, we need to be careful. We need to be humble. We need to, as a church, examine ourselves, not others, ourselves for pride. And see if there be any wicked way in us. Secondly, we need to think about our example for others. We need to think about how we decide what we decide in our life and in our ministry. Because everything that we decide, like it or not, will affect others in God's church. The whole family will be affected by what we decide. I mean, that's as true in a normal family. It's just as true in God's church. Number three, we need to ask ourselves, do we have any spiritual children? Ask yourselves, have you ever led anyone to Jesus Christ and have you reproduced yourself in other people so that our growth from this church is mostly new births and not, a, not just adoptions from other places? I mean, that's good. We understand that. But the best kind of growth is new births. Fourth, are we able to be Timothy? Can we play the second fiddle well? Can we follow our orders? Can we be faithful in them and take a genuine interest in someone else's welfare? Will we turn our lives upside down for some plain old human who happens to be loved by their creator God? Can we? Finally, do we know that we have our Bibles not only to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives? The most dangerous creature on the planet is the Christian frog. Big head, little bodies, lots of knowledge, lots of talk, little action. We thank God for his word. Oh, how we thank God for his word. But we know that that word 
changes what we believe and changes the behavior of our very lives. And loved ones, I am not saying this to shame you, but to warn you. And you ready for this? As my dear, in some sensible, reasonable, biblical way, as my dear children. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together. Well, God and Father, we give glory to your name this morning, and we thank you for these verses, uh, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. I imagine that most of us have never heard these verses preached before. I imagine that they'd be so easy to skip over because there's stuff in them, but, but if, maybe not exciting stuff, but certainly necessary stuff. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for his example. Thank you for the terms that he used, father and children. Thank you that he teaches us how to be right and how to be good Christians and how we should carry ourselves in this world. Thank you for Timothy, a guy who knew that his best life is not now on earth, but the heaven to come. And so he fashioned his life in that way. Give us the grace. Give me the grace to be more like Timothy. And thank you, God, that you love us and that in Christ we are your children and you're our perfect father. And thank you that one day soon, hopefully, we'll be with you in your heaven forever, never to have to deal with the muddle-headedness of a fallen body in a fallen world again. So may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours, both now and forevermore. Amen.